Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. So at the top of a triangle for mind and thought, what would the word be? Thinking. Thinking. Yeah. Mind consciousness. Yes, Anna. And yet if it becomes really clear if we lose one of those senses, what we're missing. So if there's no ear, you don't hear sound. Yeah, but then you are conscious of what you're not getting. No, there can't be consciousness, sound consciousness without an ear or without sound then then the experience of sound has to be taken in through another sense organ so you would experience sound through the skin yeah through pictures in the mind yeah but if you have no eye and you're blind you don't have access to um, uh, form and color. It would only happen through another sense organ in this model. Could you say circle back to the, 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 the role of the mind is just to only come, or I guess only come into play when it's creating name and form? Yeah, because right now we think the mind is like the king of all this. So there's five senses and they all get organized by the mind. This model is completely different. It's saying actually the mind is just another sense organ. And there is no king. And the sense organs themselves are organizing experience. There's no king. Okay. So yesterday when I talked about anatman, you can really see how it comes into use here, which is that we think that all this is happening to me. But this is trying to point out that actually when you slow down and you really look at how you construct experience or how experience is constructed, you can't find continuity there. And it really screws up reincarnation. You see? Because to have a model of reincarnation, you have to have a model of something underneath this that's receiving all the experience, you see? Kind of like if you play pool and you imagine a pool ball hitting another pool ball, the initial pool ball stops and the next pool ball continues. 
right? So the idea is, how do you get from one pool ball ending to another one continuing? There has to be some transfer there. Or if you temporalize that and say that's happening moment to moment to moment to moment to moment, what continues there? So the natural sciences, biology, neuroscience, nowadays we don't believe that there's this thing that continues in space and time. And it's interesting that 2,500 years ago, this was also the model. Just based on subjective experience, no fancy fMRI machines. So in the yoga tradition, and we might be getting ahead of ourselves a little bit here, in the Yoga Sutra, they replace the idea of reincarnation with a model of rebirth. Two different things. Reincarnation means that that essential me that's in there, that continues in space and time, when I die, I get reborn. Now, as a footnote, in the traditional model, depending on what meditative level you've achieved, of which there are eight, which come in sections of two. So really there's four different uh, uh, states of meditative concentration. And depending on what meditative state you've achieved, that determines your reincarnation. But actually, uh, there are also four caste systems, four levels of the caste system. And so that political and social model was all mixed up in meditative states. In other words, because you get reborn through your meditative technique into a better caste. You see? So they're all mixed up with each other. But what this model is saying is there is no you that gets to be reborn, actually. Because there's no you now. Right now. Every four days, we know, our bodies have a completely different water system. Completely different. Every four days. And that's, like, for most people, between 73 and 76% of you. So actually, most of what you think of as you is made up of non-human elements. And we superimpose onto these elements this sense of me, you see. So rebirth means that at the moment of death, your physical body continues on. Because if you die and you get buried, worms will come and eat you if you're not full of chemicals. And then the worms will excrete you and then uh, somebody will come and plant a flower, maybe your grandchild, and then a bee will come and pollinate the flower, and then someone will collect the honey, and then somebody you know will eat you in the form of honey. Okay? Or if you get burned up in flames, the smoke will go up into the sky, and then the cloud will break, and it will rain, and at your funeral service, Everybody will be soaked with you. Uh -huh. In other words, 
your body goes back into the natural world. But the you, that's this story that feels like me, we don't know what happens to it. Because it never existed, actually. It was just glued together with memory and craving. I think this starts to make sense when I, I think of listening. So I hear the idea of a siren. So Who hears? Well, nobody really. But but it's not just about me. But my thought was, or the thought was that yeah. the even the idea of sound then is subject to impermanence. Yeah. Presumably also the idea of self is too. Yeah. Which means that the creation or the the insistence yeah. on self is almost aberrant. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, a game that I like to play sometimes is just a language game. Like, if you're sitting here and then you feel like you need to pee. So instead of me saying to myself, oh, I need to pee now. Instead, I'll just say, oh, pee is here. <laughs> or uh, pee is present. Or the body needs to pee. Right. And you can just play with this sometime, like instead of making everything so personal. And I think if you pay attention to your breathing, it really feels like this. Because when... When you get really intimate with the feeling of the breath, the more intimate you get with the breath, the less personal it feels. And I think this is true with anything. The more intimate you get with sound, or the more intimate you get with another person, the less personal it is. Who gets intimate? And who gets intimate? At first it feels like a me. Like, oh, there's a me and there's breathing. But when you stay connected to the feeling of the breath over time, there's breathing, and then something happens where there's just breathing, and it doesn't feel like there's a separate me that's having the breath. Do you know what I'm talking about? We've all experienced this. You know, at first, we use this language, oh, there's a me, I'm feeling the breath, and then after a while, there's just breathing. <clears throat> And there's no separate me that it's happening to. Yeah. I have a... Because you're saying, like, when I meets form and it becomes eye consciousness and thought becomes thinking, these, which is essentially nothing, right? Or is that consciousness, is it something? Neti neti. <laughs> Good. But Bad it, man. But isn't it... Then can we say that that is... That's, Culture represents that in a way. What do you mean? I feel like culture is, is one attempt of capturing thought consciousness. Sure. Or like a, <coughs> a mesh of things. So you can apply this to everything. Uh, culture is dependently originated. Like when we say something like, oh, our culture has an idea, what we're talking about is common sense. But common sense is really just in common sense. Like, enough people have in common this particular idea, and we label that as a cultural value or something. 
But when you start to look at your own life in this lens, you start to see that all the ways we experience ourselves are all stories that we've internalized. Like the way you perform your gender, right? Or the way you perform your relationship with money. All of these things are constructed by our time and our ancestry. And maybe this is a good way of uh, forgiving our parents. Is because then we look at our parents and we say, Oh, look at how their lives were constricted and constructed by the way their culture defined work and gender and family and the values of those times. And maybe when we get older and we see how uh, constructed we are, it allows us to forgive our parents more easily because they're also constructs. And most of their troubles uh, are not their fault. Just like most of the things we act out are not really our fault. They've been internalized, you see. So can we take this just a little bit further and then we'll have some time to discuss it? Um, or is there a pressing question where we can't go on? Uh, I don't know if it's pressing, but okay. I'm just wondering, so each, each of the sense organs encounters something, so they encounter sound and then this creates yeah. hearing. But so where, where are the thoughts that the mind encounters? It's like each one of these is a moment of consciousness and it looks like these fireworks happening and this can all be, it's called a kshana, that's a kshana and it's that it, this happens 64 times in a kshana. I don't know how anyone ever figured that out. Yeah. So, uh, thoughts, they just do this. And it gives us the feeling, just like when you watch a film, right? You watch a film and it looks like there's a film happening, but really there's, what, 24 frames a second. But really, if you slowed that down, you can see, oh, it's all built out of these frames. And what happens in deep states of meditative practice is the mind gets so quiet that you can actually see the arising of a sound, the contact, and the moment of listening, and watch it fade away. And then you can also start to see how that whole process is like pixelated. And this is usually kind of where people start to freak out in meditative practice is you actually start to look so closely at how each moment is constructed and there's nothing actually holding it together. And usually this freaks people out, actually. Because then you see that really built into the natural world, there is nothing that's making it yours. So in a way, the Buddha who talked in detail about this model, was doing for the self what Copernicus did for the universe, which is decentering the self from being the middle of it all. 
and seeing that the self is actually just a construct. A question? Yeah. Uh, it's just making me think about ADHD. Yes. And almost like how it's sort of, it's kind of in a way been on the rise maybe in the last couple of decades, uh -huh. I think, in modern psychology. Mm -hmm. But is that because we in North America maybe are, are our understanding um, these Eastern practices now more and integrating them, and mm -hmm. so are we freaking out? And are we now trying to label this idea of no self as ADHD when really it's? Uh, do you know? Do you, I hear where you're going. Let's so let's pause on that. Okay. Because we're going to go in much. You have no idea how much more detail. Okay. We're gonna okay. Get. Um, is it okay if we just go a little bit further here? Okay. So. If these are your sense organs, then when the sense organs make contact with sense objects, you get consciousness. And we call that sensation. So this is a little bit different than how we use the term sensation in Western uh, terminology, because we usually think sensation is just feeling something with our skin, right? It's sensual. But the term sensation here is used to describe sense contact. In other words, even a thought is considered sensation. And it's a really interesting concentration practice uh, when the mind is really quiet to actually feel in your body where thoughts come from. It's a really interesting practice to do. Um, so when there's contact, there's sensation. How do you know that there's sensation? Are your legs touching the floor right now? Feeling. So sensation gives rise to feeling. Or in Sanskrit, this is called Vedana. There is only feeling because there's sensation. There's only sensation because there are sense organs and sense objects coming alive, making contact. And then there are three different kinds of feeling. There are positive feelings, so that's a positive feeling tone. There are negative feelings, and then there are neutral feelings. When you experience sensations, they fall into what's often called the three baskets. And there is a vipassana meditation technique where when the mind starts to get quiet, you start watching sensations appear and you watch them fall into the three baskets. 
you can see negative feeling tone, positive feeling tone, and neutrality. Um, any questions about that? Do you see the logic here? One is dependent on the other. When there is feeling, feeling gives rise to two different processes. One is called raga, and the other is called dvesha. Oops. Raga means attachment. Dvesha means aversion. And these are twins, Raga Dvesha. When there is positive feeling, usually this gives rise to Raga. In the Yoga Sutra, the definition of Raga or attachment is the desire to repeat pleasurable experience. And the definition of dvesha, or aversion, is the intention to move away from what is not pleasurable. And every moment, we're oscillating back and forth between raga, dvesha. Raga is leaning into experience, and dvesha is trying to get out of experience. And has anybody watched this today? All day. Like this? Don't like it. I want more of this? Don't want any more of this. So great to be here. I love meditation practice, sitting still all day. I hate this. Why? Why did I sign up? Right? So all day we're watching this meter going back and forth. Raga, Dvesha. Raga, Dvesha. Raga, Dvesha. When we experience pleasure, we want to repeat it. This is biological. Human beings are pleasure-seeking. We love pleasure. And when we experience negative feeling, that's supposed to be a negative, um, usually we want to get out of it. This is called dvesha. So I just want to end with one example of this, which an example I like to use is uh, my older son, Arlen, when he was really young, uh, about a year old, his favorite thing was eating banana. This was his favorite thing. Some of you have met my son. And my son, Arlen, has really big cheeks. He looks like Dizzy Gillespie. Big, huge cheeks. And so what he would do is we'd mush up banana and put it on his table and then he would take the banana and he would put it in his cheek until his cheek, he looked like a squirrel, until his cheek was full. And then he would take the banana, he put it inside his other cheek 
like he was storing it forever. And then he would take banana and he'd put it in his ears. <laughs> and then he would put it in his nose. And then he would start crying because he wanted more banana. But there was not like an orifice you could put any more banana in. And I remember watching this and thinking, oh, attachment. It's built in. So we taste something sweet and we just want more of it. But if you look more closely, attachment is actually a version. Attachment is a version to what's not pleasurable. And aversion is actually attachment to what's pleasurable. And as you fine tune your contemplative skill, you'll see that all day your body is either hungry for things or wants to get away from things. And gone unchecked, this is exhausting. It's exhausting. And as I was saying, this is happening every shana, every moment all this is happening. And the purpose of mindfulness practice is just to slow down and start to really see how our moment-to-moment -moment experience is constructed. Because if moment-to-moment -moment experience is constructed in this way, then craving is a construct and craving can then be deconstructed but the self is then seen as a construct that's impermanent and contingent and the self can be deconstructed and if this goes unconscious then most of our energy is in mind-wandering states of attachment and aversion that give rise to unhappiness because we're caught up in the momentum of chronic and unconscious habit patterns and we're not actually fresh and creatively engaged with our fluid experience. So I'll stop here. Um, hopefully we've started to sketch out a psychological model of what we all intuitively know is happening to us. Or maybe it's not happening to us. Moment to moment to moment. So, thank you very much. Uh, let's take a break. Thank you for listening to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. If you like this podcast, you can support it by subscribing on iTunes or SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rate us and leave a comment. Your feedback helps to distinguish us from the pack. You can also support us by word of mouth. Tell a friend or send a tweet. Finally, please consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Michael Stone. Even a couple of dollars a month will help us reach our goals. To learn about Michael's retreats and his online courses, go to michaelstoneteaching.com. Once again, that's michaelstoneteaching.com.
With your support, we'll continue to build a community library about mindfulness and mental health that can be shared with the world. Thank you for supporting this community without walls.